welcome to the inaugural episode of the podcast series, AGG Talks, Antitrust and White Collar Crime Roundup, in which we cover the legal facts surrounding recent cases, trends, and hot topics related to antitrust, white collar crime, with some of the foremost legal analysts in the country. My name is Jeff Jakobovitz. I am a trial attorney with Arnell Golden Gregory, and I chair the firm's antitrust group. I'm joined today by Cynthia Alsney, a former federal and state prosecutor, MSNBC legal analyst, and expert on criminal law, grand jury, and police investigations, and confrontational interviewing techniques. Cynthia has handled cases involving weeks of grand jury investigations and live testimony, leading to dozens of indictments. She has a deep understanding of DOJ and state investigative policies, grand jury protocols, and FBI practices and procedures. She's here with me today to analyze the indictment of former President Trump by a Manhattan grand jury. Cynthia and I will discuss the strengths and weaknesses of the Trump indictment, the necessity of the underlying claims like tax issues and election concealment, the timing of the trial, and more. Cynthia, thank you for joining me today. Let's get started. You have examined the Trump indictment carefully. How strong of an indictment do you think it is? I think it's strong. I think what's important is to to divide. What do you think about it politically? Let's just put that aside. What you know, do you think it's a good idea? That's different. That's we're not talking about that today. But if you just look at it legally and factually, and not politically, but legally and factually, it's pretty strong. I mean, it's beautifully framed. And what I mean by that is, instead of it just being a setup of like Trump versus Cohen kind of indictment, the indictment is framed to cover a complete conspiracy, an election conspiracy that includes three specific incidents and then all of the associated records. But it means that the way it's framed, Cohen is not as important in the indictment as we might have expected before it came down. And I think that's very helpful, number one. Number two, the falsifying business records is sort of a bread and butter of uh, DA's office in Manhattan. And there is a lot of talk about, well, the way it's set up, we don't really know if it's a felony or if it's not. And I'm sure people who listen to this podcast are savvy enough to know falsifying business records is a class A misdemeanor unless it's done with the intent to conceal or carry out a second crime. We all know that now about falsifying business records. And while it doesn't say in the indictment what that second crime is, it's pretty clear from the statement of facts and from uh, DA's press conference what they're talking about there. Well, well, Albert Gregg doesn't have an obligation to say what that second crime is in the indictment, does he? No, he doesn't have an obligation. And it's really New York practice to flesh that all out through the motion practice. So I don't really see it as a problem. There's a lot of hoo-ha on television about it because, we, you know, on television, everybody wants the answer right away. But in New York practice, that will come out. But I, I think it's clear that it's campaign finance slash election crimes and tax crimes. And that's clear from the statement of facts and from his press conference. Cynthia, what about the fact that You hear analysts on TV, legal analysts that support Trump saying, well, this is not a bread and butter case. Uh, This is an unusual case for the Manhattan DA. Is that accurate? No, 
I mean, it's unusual in that it's a former president. That's unusual. It's unusual given the circus-like atmosphere of it, but it is not unusual to have this type of case. In fact, Alan Bragg has brought quite a few of these cases. And not only do we know he's brought a lot of falsifying business record cases, because that's, you know, New York is the financial capital of the world, and this is not an unusual way to prosecute those cases. But we also know that, for example, in the state, these are type of cases that have applied to campaign finance issues. There's one in Rockland County, where there was a misrepresentation of the source of funds that eventually turned out to be a falsifying business record case. There was one in Oneida County, where somebody was running and stealing funds and then falsifying the business record. And there was one in Brooklyn, which is Kings County, where I was a baby DA, which was illegal contributions. So not only is our campaign finance issues not unusual to be used with a falsifying business record statute, the statute itself is used all the time by the DA's office. So basically what I'm hearing from you is that other DAs pursue similar types of cases. This is not unusual. That's correct. Okay. And what about the weaknesses of this case? Do you see any weaknesses? Well, I mean, I just think whenever you're picking a jury and there is a political aspect to the case, that's a weakness. I mean, as we all know, you have to have a unanimous jury. So there's always a wild card when it comes to jury practice. You know, you've tried a lot of cases. I've tried a lot of cases. We know that. Factually, it's pretty cut and dry. We know who the witnesses are. They're Pecker, who was at AMI and cut the deal that they would have this catch and kill scheme. It's Cohen, who was really the enforcer of the deal. It's the people who benefited from that. And then it's fundamentally a lot of paper. There's a paper case. There's all of the checks that were written, many of which were signed by Trump. There are emails allegedly to support it. There's even an audio tape when it came time to discussion about how was Karen McDougal going to be paid, where Trump says, Cohen says, oh, let's set up an LLC. And Trump says, no paying cash. That's coming in. There's a lot of factual support for this case. An interesting question is, if you divide it between factually and legally, really, what is the factual defense for Trump? Because you know he has said publicly he did not have an affair with her. Okay, well, is that going to be the defense, that he didn't have an affair with Stormy Daniels? So I don't really see when it comes to the business record, what is the factual defense of Trump? I see his his defense as, as totally legal. But what about the defense that's been put out there that he was doing it to cover it up for Melania? He didn't want Melania to know. Okay, well, there's two problems with that. The first is he says he never had an affair with her. So why would you pay somebody if you never had the affair? That's one. And two, we know that the second woman, the Stormy Daniels woman, tried to get money before, but when wasn't given any. Then after the Access Hollywood tape, when it really was a threat to his campaign, they very quickly got her paid. In the course of that negotiation, Cohen says, Trump said, let's cut the deal, but let's not pay her until after the election, because maybe then we won't have to pay her. And that rebuffs the Melania And then, of course, that's the whole point of structuring it with AMI and the catch and kill, because then it's global. It's like when David Pecker comes in and says, which he pled guilty to earlier, we structure this entire thing because of the campaign. He's a witness that supports Cohen on that. So the Melania defense, which seemed interesting on television as a factual matter, has fallen apart. 
And what about Karen McDougall and the doorman who received $30,000? How do they fit in? Well, they fit into the conspiracy because now the three incidents will come in. And I think it strengthens the final payment to Stormy Daniels because of the similarity. I guess, you know, in terms of weaknesses, the Trump attorneys have put out the fact that Michael Cohn is a convicted felon and he's a key government witness. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think that's true. I do think it hurts the case. And that's why it's important to broaden it and include Pecker, who's also a convicted felon, but broaden it to include the entire conspiracy. But as we all know, when you're trying cases and you have cooperators, what you tell the jury in jury selection, if the judge will let you, depending on how how much flexibility you're getting in jury selection and the judge, and certainly an opening statement, that you have a cooperator to a crime and the Pope is not a cooperator to crimes. The people who are cooperator to crimes are other criminals. And everybody has their different little way they say that in court, but essentially that will be something that comes out of the DA's mouth as soon as they can get it out in order to uh, set up Michael Cohen's testimony. So uh, in terms of um, the tax issues and the election concealment, you mentioned those. Are those the types of acts that bump up a misdemeanor to a felony? Yes. And you can tell in the statement of facts that Bragg is really considering the tax issue. What's interesting about what's bumping it to a felony is it is not required that the second crime actually be committed, only that the person committing the falsification of records intended to conceal or commit a second crime. So if you look at the way the Cohen payment was structured, he was to be paid the money back that Stormy Daniels got plus an additional sum to pay for his taxes. And that's right in the statement of facts on pages seven and eight. And Bragg also talked about that in his press conference. So that's one. Then there are the campaign finance violations. And not only would this be a donation to the campaign, which would have to have been recorded, Bragg also talked about the state of New York's legal right to faithfully carry out its laws, including the manner in which they execute their elections. And since this was a fraud to be perpetrated on the voters so that they could not faithfully execute the election laws and the actual election itself, that's another possibility for him that he raised at the press conference. And what about all the threats that the judge is receiving and the fact that Trump's family, certain members put up pictures of the daughter? Um, well, what would you tell a client if they were doing that? Well, you know, if they were doing that, I'd tell them to stop immediately because under New York law, there are various statutes that would mean that they can be indicted. Right. The problem is all those statutes are misdemeanors. They're, they're class A misdemeanors in New York. Right. But it could be a way to deter these types of actions because maybe certainly, you know, there's threats on judges and a judge, I believe, in New Jersey was shot a few years ago or ago. And so the judges take these threats very seriously. Right. And he already warned Trump at the arraignment to stop it. But the problem is that the ball has started rolling. I actually feel for the judge on this because I don't know what he really can do. It doesn't seem to me that it's in Trump's DNA to 
be quiet about it. He is, after all, running for president, and he's not going to respond to a gag order. And then what's the judge going to do? Like in the Roger Stone case, when he defied her orders, the judge, Amy Berman Jackson, said she'd put him in the back and that calmed things down. But you can't say that to somebody who's running for president. Right. I would think the judge uh, is in an impossible situation because you cannot impose a gag order on somebody running for president. And then that candidate would, you know, get up there and talk about how he's being stifled. He cannot talk. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's an impossible situation. I think you right. identified the problem. And I feel for him. I don't know. I honestly don't know what the answer is, because I don't think a misdemeanor count is forthcoming. I did notice in this latest filing that the DA did, which is you know another topic against Jim Jordan, that he cataloged all the threats. It's obviously on their mind, and they're looking for some way to deal with it. But I don't think they have a solution yet, and I certainly don't know what one is. And Cynthia, what about um, the timing effect here? You know, chances are this case will not be going to trial until early 2024, if that. Uh, And we have investigations going in Georgia, criminal investigations. We have DOJ looking at the Mar-a-Lago documents, as well as the January 6th incursion. So what do you think about the timing? And is there some sort of cyclone effect here? We also have the rape case coming to trial in a few weeks against Trump. Right. I think there is a cyclone effect. And I also think that this case will lose its preeminent stature. It has it now because it's the first case. But my sense about it is when Fannie Willis indicts the president, and I believe she will in May, and when Jack Smith indicts the president, and I believe he will over the summer, that this case will almost take a back seat. So, but just imagine you're trying to pick a jury in the rape case. And then you have this case about, which is introducing all the evidence from the Access Hollywood tape and how he treated women. And that has to have some kind of rolling effect on how you're picking a jury in the rape case. And then when it comes time for the Dominion, and and don't forget, there's also the Dominion case out there, the Dominion versus Fox case, which essentially the judge has already said everything that was said about the election and Trump winning the election was a lie. And the only question is, was it said with actual malice, right? That essentially saying Trump was lying to everybody. That's what's happening in that case. Trump was lying to everybody and did Fox repeat it with actual malice. That is in the potential juror's mindset. Right. And that's, you know, one of the reasons maybe Trump has asked to change venues and he's looking to move to Staten Island, which is a lot more conservative borough in New York than Manhattan. Right. But the venue change is about, it's two things I want to say about that. Can you go somewhere where they don't have the same coverage, right? Can you go somewhere and not be affected by the news coverage that's happened? You can't go to Staten. Staten Island has the same news coverage as Manhattan. That's not going to work. So there's no point in doing that. And I don't think the court would do that, number one. And number two, much of the news coverage, without getting into the politics of it, but much of the news coverage that's happening and the threats are a function of Trump issuing statements and tweets and photos of, you know, retweeting photos of Bragg with the baseball bat. You can't say, I can't be tried fairly because there's a circus if you are part of the circus. 
So I don't th- see a venue change as working in New York. And when you mentioned the uh, Georgia investigation and Fannie Willis, uh, you talk about a May indictment. Does that have anything to do with the fact that there was a special grand jury and now a regular grand jury? Yes. So the special grand jury issued whatever report it issued. And we heard from the foreperson that they had recommended charges without, you know, with some information and winks and nods, but without solid information on exactly what they did. There is another grand jury coming up in May. It doesn't take very long once you have the information that Fannie Willis has given two things. One, she said indictments were imminent, and that's really the first grand jury coming up. So that indicates to me that May is an option. And also there's that big motion that we remember the president hired a local lawyer in Georgia, pretty well respected, who filed a motion quashing, trying to quash the indictment before the indictment had been issued and to force Fannie Willis off the case. That's going to be heard on May 1. And my instinct is that after that motion is heard, that will free her up to go ahead and do the indictment in May. And I predict she will. And as a former prosecutor, what do you have to do? Do you then read the former testimony into the record for the new grand jury? Uh, I believe that testimony is extensive. Right. It depends on the state. Some states allow hearsay, some don't. For example, New York does not. Georgia does. So I don't think it would take that long. You don't have to re-put in the witnesses. And do you think Merrick Garland will go along with what his special counsel, Jack Smith, will recommend? I do. I think that, I mean, it's no secret that I have been critical of the Department of Justice and how long it took them to move on the conspiracy itself. They've obviously been very effective about January 6th and the lower level people, but were slow to get started on the upper level of the conspiracy. But I believe that once he has farmed this out to Jack Smith, and then also the Biden docs have a special prosecutor as well, he will follow their lead. I believe he will. I believe he was looking for somebody else to make a decision. And based on your experience, how much time would elapse between Jack Smith's recommendation and Merrick Garland's decision? No, I'm sure they're in communication. I, I think that when Jack Smith makes a decision, it will be. I mean, on some level, it's frustrating, right? Because before Jack Smith was appointed and there was the warrant application for the president uh, for Mar-a-Lago, and that sat on Garland's desk for almost three weeks. So that gives you some pause that it's taking him longer than one might expect. But I think Jack Smith is now in town and up to speed, and I, I don't think it will take that long. And Merrick Garland's a former appellate judge, is that correct? Yes. He has an appellate judge mindset. He's my former section, the civil rights section, where we prosecuted police officers and jailhouse crimes and the Klan. He has done really good work there and been very effective. I just think when it came to the wading into the politics, he's been very cautious, which is a strength and a weakness. Yeah, I remember um, I argued a criminal case in front of him in the D.C. Circuit one time, and I remember him when he was an assistant U.S. attorney in D.C., as was you. Is that correct? That's right. A long time ago. (laughs) Well, uh, Cynthia, I think we're almost out of time. I guess there were some developments this week. I don't know if you want to comment at all about the developments and how they may impact on 
the issues we have discussed, but feel free. Well, the developments that we know of that are sort of breaking right now is um, the president has requested that the rape case be continued um, at least for a month for things to settle down. I don't think that will succeed, but that's out there and those decisions are being made. And just so the audience is clear, the rape case is a civil case. Is that right? It's a rape defamation. Right. It's a rape defamation case. But at its heart, it's a rape case. I mean, that's what they're having to prove. And just imagine from a trial lawyer's point of view, what that means for other cases. First of all, how these other cases affect the choosing of the jury and the jurors opinion of the president and how if he loses the civil case, how that affects future jurors in other cases. Let me just say one thing about trying cases, and this is my experience. If you can convince a jury that somebody you respect has lied to you, you will win the case. The case will go against that person who is a liar. It is the fundamental hurdle that you have to get over. And if the jurors in any of these cases believe that they've been lied to by president's people or, for example, by the prosecution witnesses, it goes both ways. It's a huge hurdle that has to be overcome. And I think we should look to that as the cyclone of these cases affect each other. I see. Well, I think um, we're about out of time, Cynthia. I want to thank you for joining uh, me and us today. And listeners, we hope that you found the discussion to be informative. If you have any questions or would like to submit any feedback or topics for future podcasts, please feel free to reach out to me, Jeff Jakobovitz. You can find my contact information on agg.com. And uh, future podcast episodes will be distributed through our website on AGG and social media pages. Thank you again for joining us, Cynthia. Good afternoon.